of God is moving throughout the earth and among God's people to bring forth significant shifts and change. He is sending forth into the earth a sound to open the portals between heaven and earth. This sound of the Lord causes the heavenly realm to move on the earth and opens the way for those on the earth to move in the heavenlies. What you just heard was a call to worship dating back to the very beginning. Uh, brief explanation of what you just heard. The first part of it was the call to alert, to alert God's people. It was also used in a time of war. The second, the three breaking tones, signified the breaking down of what resists the Lord and the breaking in of God's power, grace, and purpose. The extended tone at the end represents or signifies rather the presence of God as he orders his people in his perfect timing. The fact that it was prolonged finally and firmly establishes God's sovereign purpose and rule over his people and his places. Amen. Well, this morning we are starting a new series, Worship Matters. And so I asked James to, to do that, blow the shofar there, and not chauffeur, shofar, and uh, to give that call to worship. And uh, just, just to show you how, how worship has changed, uh, we don't use the shofar anymore, but uh, in other places they do. Uh, and it's still worship, right? It's all part of worship. So as we, we think about this and we think about worship, I mean, worship matters. I entitled that, that, that uh, gave that, this series that title for a reason because there's, there's, two, there's two aspects here that we're looking at, right? Worship matters. Worship really does matter. We have that question today, does worship really matter? Does it matter that we come together and, and as a, a people of God to, to worship in a place, in a common place? It, does it really matter that we do that? A lot of people today say, well, no, it really doesn't, because I can, I can worship out on the deer stand, or I can worship at home. I can worship anywhere, but I don't have to come to the church. And it's true, we can worship in all of those other places. There can be that individual worship. But is it important that we come together? Does it matter that we come together as a people of God and worship? The Bible says it, it does. It matters. Worship matters. And so we're going to look at, over the course of the next few weeks, uh, of how that matters, why it matters to God. Uh, but also, we want to think about matters of worship. Matters of worship. Does it really matter what we do in worship? Or are there certain things that have to be here? Are there certain things that we must do in worship? Or do we just have free reign? 
And I would say that the Bible tells us that, yes, there are certain things that, that must be in place if we want to worship as a people of God. And so we're going to look at that as well. So there are just a few of the things that we're going to look at over the course of the next few weeks, six weeks uh, total, that we're going to look at this. So today we're looking at uh, this subject of everybody worships. Everybody worships. Everybody, not just Christians. Every human being who has ever existed worships. And so as we do that, look with me today in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Uh, Looking at this letter of Paul, Paul is writing this letter to a church whom at this point he had never visited. Uh, This this church in Rome, he, he hadn't established it. He had just heard about it. And he's getting ready to, to visit that church. And he thinks he's going to travel there just on his own free will, travel to Rome and then on to Spain. But uh, it, comes, wait, wait, it worked out was he was arrested. He's right, as he's writing this, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, he's arrested. And he's given a free trip to Rome by the Roman government. Uh, and so he made it there, but not as he had intended but he's writing this letter to them, and in this letter, he's kind of working out really a theology of the gospel. It's really a full theology of the gospel. And so in this first part, in the first couple of chapters, first few chapters actually, he's working out the problem, our problem, uh, sin, our problem of sin and death and, and why we need salvation. And so as he begins here, he shows us that everybody indeed worships but there's a problem in our worship the worship that we do naturally in these old bodies of flesh so if you found your place there please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word hear the word of the Lord for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived, even ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the Creator, rather created, excuse me, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your holy and inspired and inerrant word. And Lord, as we come to this morning to to study your word, we pray that you would write its eternal truth on our hearts. Pierce our hearts this morning, Lord. Let us see truth, your truth, the only truth. And let us learn to live by it. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So did you know that everybody worships? Everybody. Throughout all of history, every tribe, every tongue, every nation has worshipped somebody or something. There's been no tribe discovered that's ever been just, you know, non-theistic, non-worshippers of anything. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation throughout all of history has worshipped someone or something. It's just a matter of, of, of truth. I mean, it's just the way it is. And that's because God has created us as human beings. He's cre- he created us to worship. He created us to worship Him who above all things is worthy of our worship and praise. So we've all been created to worship, and everybody worships. No matter who it is, what it is, everybody worships. Everybody worships. What does it mean to worship? Let's think about that for a moment. What, what does that word worship mean? Well, our word worship comes from an old English term uh, that was worth-ship. That's where it began, worth-ship. And it is ascribing worth, value to someone. So if you worship someone, then, then you're counting them worthy, worthy of honor and praise. And that's what Paul describes it as even in our text. Look down at verse 21 there in your Bible. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So, see, Paul there in that little verse there tells us, gives us an idea about what worship is. It's about giving honor to someone or something. And it's about praising, giving thanks to someone or something. And so, properly aimed worship is towards God. You honor God and praise Him, give thanks to God. But what Paul is saying here that everyone doesn't do that. Everyone doesn't do that. They worship, but they don't worship rightly. So everybody worships, but here indeed is the problem, and this is what Paul is showing us today. Everybody worships, but misdirected worship ends in God's eternal judgment. Everybody worships, but misdirected worship ends in God's eternal judgment. That is God's wrath, the outpouring of His righteous anger on sin. And so uh, what this is exactly what Romans is telling us here. This 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 verses here that we're looking at today. So today I want to point out to you three principles concerning God's wrath and worship. Three principles concerning God's wrath and worship. And my hope for you today is that we would consider the truth of of these principles. Each one of us as we we think about this and pray that God would redeem our own worship and assure that our worship is directed into the proper place, directed toward God. So let's break into it this morning. The first principle that we see here is this, the number one sin, the number one sin that condemns everyone is suppressing the truth about God. Did you know that? The number one sin that condemns every human being is suppressing the truth about God. That's what Paul is getting at here in that very first verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Now, when we think about that, first let's talk about the wrath of God. What does the wrath of God mean? The wrath of God has been revealed. That word wrath means the, the, the outpouring. It, it's a word of passion. It's a word of passion. Do you know God is a passionate God? He is a passionate God. He loves with all of his being, but he also hates with all of his being. If you hear people talk about God, oh, my God's not a hateful God. My God is not an angry God. My God is a loving God. Your God is not the God of the Bible. People say, oh, no, that's the Old Testament God. No, Paul says in the New Testament, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. The God is a God of love. He is 100% a God of love, but he's also 100% an angry God when it comes to sin. He hates and despises sin. He despises rebellion. And so he is an angry God, ready to pour out his wrath, his righteous anger toward sin. You know, this word wrath is, is the word orge, from which we get our word orgy. We talked about that a few weeks ago, orgy. It's not necessarily, you don't think about sexual act, but, but it, it has that connotation where it's just giving over to passion, pouring out over to passion. And, and so we see that in our own terms when we talk about orgy. It's just giving over to a passion, to a desire, to a lust. When it's used in reference to God here, though, when it's talking about his wrath, it, it means that he's giving over to the passion of his anger. And that's what we see in the judgment of God. God is just pouring out, passionately pouring out His anger towards sin. Because God can't stand sin. It disgusts Him. He cannot be in the presence of sin. Because He is a righteous God, He must pour out His anger towards sin. There's no option for Him. If He did not pour out His anger towards sin, if it did not make Him angry then he wouldn't be a righteous God. If he just kind of looked at sin and said, oh, well, I'll just let, let that slide, he would not be God. He would, there would be no righteousness in him. But because our God is a righteous God, he is angry towards sin. And his anger is revealed. It is manifested. It, it is made uh, evident when God pours out his wrath towards sin, the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men. Now, I want you to see here that this is a universal problem. As God is pouring out His wrath, He's pouring it out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, Paul is using this generic term, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men. He's using a very generic term because he, he wants to point out the, the fact that this is a universal problem. It affects every human being, ever, whoever has lived and ever will live. It involves all human beings, even us. Right? In our natural condition, we are ungodly. We are unrighteous. We don't seek after God. We seek our, after our own will and our own desire. And he makes that known in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He doesn't say some. He says nobody. No one. It's a universal problem. Each and every one of us have this same sin problem. Now what is this sin problem? 
is suppressing the truth. It's suppressing the truth. It's suppressing the truth about God. Now notice that this is a volitional problem. It's a volitional problem. That suppressing the truth is a volition. It's an act of the will. It's a, a wanting to, to push down and suppress. It's something that we do. Uh, we want to do. It's not something that we're made to do. We want to do this. We want to suppress the truth about God. Now what does it mean to suppress? Think about that. You think about wrestlers. Wrestlers. To win the wrestling match, they must suppress their opponent. They must pin their opponent to the ground. Hold him down and keep him down. It's kind of what it means to suppress something. It's an act of the will of taking something and, and shoving it down deep inside. We, we have the, the term suppressed, uh, suppressed uh, feelings, suppressed uh, memories and, and those types of things in, in the psychology world. You have suppressed feelings or repressed memories that you, you, you press down. There, there's some things that they say that uh, have been so traumatic, especially in childhood, that people will suppress them. They'll suppress them. They'll shove them down so deep till the point that, that they're not even there, they're there anymore. They, they don't even realize that they're there. And that's what he's saying. We have the truth about God, but we suppress it. We, by our natural will, we suppress it. We push it down. We shove it down into a dark, deep hole because we don't want it. We don't want to know the truth about God. And it's this suppression of the truth, this shoving down of the truth that God's wrath is revealed against. It's this sin, this one sin that condemns us all to God's eternal judgment. So the number one sin that condemns every, everyone is suppressing the truth about God. You know, we've seen this type of suppression uh, and teachers, you'll relate to this, you'll understand this. Uh, when my dad was sheriff, uh, I got a first-hand view of this because my dad, he would go out and as sheriff, he would arrest people, right? And, and so you, you, he would catch this young teenage boy uh, stealing stuff, right? He, he would catch him doing something and, and catch, the, catch the guy red-handed, He's, he's got the, the stuff he stole in hand, right? And, and so he, he calls his parents and hey, look, I got old Johnny up here and he, he stole all of this stuff and you need to come get Johnny. What? Johnny would never do that. Not my Johnny. Oh, no, not my Johnny. He would never steal. He would never do something like that. And, and just, no, I caught him red. No, no, no. They suppress the truth about their child, right? Parents do that all the time. They suppress the truth. They, they just can't believe it about their child. Let me tell you, your child will mess up. I'm just going to tell you, your child will mess up. They will do it. But you see, that's exactly what we do with the truth about God. We suppress it. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to believe the truth about God. And so by our very nature, we will suppress the truth about God. Every human being is condemned before God under God's divine wrath, because every human being ultimately suppresses the truth about God. And we can clearly see this because, principle number two, because God has clearly revealed His eternal power and divine nature in creation. God has 
clearly revealed himself. He has clearly revealed his eternal power and his divine nature and, and the things that he has created. It, it's, it's, the proof is there. It's there. We should be able to see it and recognize it. Look what he says there in verses 19 and 20. For, because, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in ever, since, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Every human being is without excuse because you can see God in creation. Now he points out to the fact there that God is invisible. God is an invisible God. We can't see God. We, we can't lay our eyes on him. Uh, we can now because he came in the flesh, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. We can see Jesus, but we can't see God. God is an invisible God. So we can't view him. Now, the scientists would say because we can't view God, we can't observe God, and we can't really prove that he exists, and therefore God must not exist. That's what science would say. The, the evolutionary scientists and, and the secular scientists, not all scientists, but the, the evolutionary scientists, the secular scientists, they would say you can't see God, you can't observe God, you can't, you can't uh, watch what he does, and so therefore God doesn't exist. And Paul recognizes that. He, he says there, God is in, an invisible God. We cannot see his invisible attributes. But that doesn't mean that there's no evidence that shows us who God is. Paul says that he has revealed himself in creation. He has made himself known in creation in all the world. When we go outside, when we look at nature, we can see, we should be able to see that God exists. All right, well, we'll take this for example. Here's, here's one of the good arguments for uh, God's existence. Oh, you see this watch? I brought, I brought my big watch today so everybody can see it. You, you see my big watch here? Uh, this, is a, this is a watch. It's a great watch. It keeps time very well. I, I like this watch. Now, what if I came in here and I told you, well, you know, you said, man, I like, Richard, I like your watch. Where did you get that watch? Well, you know, I just had a box of parts. And I just took that box of parts and I began to shake it. And I just shook it for a good hour. And all of a sudden, after an hour, I opened up the box and, and there was the watch. What would you say? You're crazy. You're insane. That could never happen, right? That's exactly what you would say. Because you, you see the complexity of a watch. I mean, there's gears in here that work. And, and they've got to work just right to keep the time just right. It, it, it takes an intelligent designer to put the parts together so that the watch works correctly. You can't just throw parts in a box, shake it up, and, and see what comes out. Yet, evolutionary scientists would say that very thing. They say that's how the world was created. There was a big bang, and, and out of this big bang, the universe was created. Our solar system was created. Our, our earth happened to, to fall in just the right orbit that is just, just perfectly ordered so that, you know, you know if, if the earth was just a, a little bit closer to the sun, it would be too hot for life. If it were a little bit further away from the sun, it would be too cold for life. But the earth is in the perfect place for life. And so our universe is perfectly ordered. There's order 
There's complexity to it. And the secular scientist would say, oh, it was just by chance. You just threw the parts in a box, shook them up, and there's what came out. Think about the human body. Think about the human body. How complex our human body is. Take one part of our body. Take our heart. Now, some of you have experienced AFib, when your heart gets out of rhythm and it's not working right, and how does that make you feel? If, that little, if your heart is just a little bit off, you just feel miserable. You can't hardly go at all. And if it gets off too much, that's it. That's it. There's no more you, right? It's over. But this body that's so complex, God put it together. He knit it together so that it works just right. Not just the heart, but all the organs working in sync with one another. And look at the complexity of that. How could you say there's no God? How could you say that's by chance? That it just happened? Now the evolutionary scientists said, well, that's a a part of mutation, right? Mutation and natural selection. So you have these mutations that all began with a single-cell organism, And that single-cell organism had a mutation, and it was a beneficial mutation, and it caused it to expand and grow, and and there was this constant process of this mutation, that mutation, another mutation, all the way down until you get the human being, the complex organism, the complex body, right? And that's how it all came about. Now, we know that there are mutations that take place in the gene pool there in in our cells. There are mutations that take place. But, you know, I I don't know of one that ever, ever, I don't know that there's ever been a good mutation. Usually when a gene mutates, when there's a mutation in the cells, it's bad. There's a disease there. There's a problem that has to be fixed. But, you know, the scientists say, well, there's these beneficial mutations that took place to wind us up here. But let's just give them that. I'll say, okay, we mutated. Well, where did the single-cell organism come from? Where did that one single-cell organism come from? Well, there was this primordial ooze. And all the parts happened to come together at just the right time, at just the right place, and and in just the right conditions so that they combined together to make that cell come alive. All the parts were in the box, the box got shook up, and out came this organism. You see, that's us suppressing the truth. When we look at the complexity of the universe, we look at the complexity of the human body, of, of animals in general, when we look at the complexity all around us in creation, we should look and say, oh man, what a God. But instead, as human beings, we typically try to find a way to explain God away. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. God has clearly, clearly revealed Himself in nature. In all of His creation, He has shown us, He has made clear, though we cannot see God, He has made Himself evident through the things that He has created. I want you to think about that. Think about this for a moment. If I have a cold, I can't see the virus that's making me sick, but I don't need to see the virus to know that the virus is there, right? 
Now, I know you could say, well, you could take a microscope and see the virus, but I don't need a microscope to see the virus. I know the virus is there when I'm sick. We should be able to look at creation, see the complexity of creation, and know God is there because of what we see with our eyes. God has made Himself, He has revealed Himself clearly in His creation. So the number one sin that condemns everyone is suppressing the truth about God because God has clearly revealed His eternal power and divine nature in creation. Yet people, number three, yet people exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the created rather than the Creator. People exchange the truth for a lie and worship and serve the created rather than the Creator. Notice what he says there in those final verses. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. In other words, they became foolish in their reasoning. Mankind became foolish in their reasoning, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to, in the lust of their hearts to the impurity, uh, to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the Creator rather than... Excuse me, I said that wrong twice. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what we naturally do in our natural condition. We, we look at, at the things that God has created, and we don't want to believe that, because if we, wanted to, if we believe that, if we see God for who He is, if we recognize His divine attributes, if we recognize His divine power and authority, then that means we must kneel to Him, we must worship Him, we must praise Him, we must give thanks to Him, we must give all thanks to Him, but we see that and we don't want to do that because we want to worship ourselves. And that's the problem. That's why men will worship things, they'll worship the, the images of, of man and beast and all of these other idols because those idols represent their own wants and desires. That's why the ancient Romans worship Epaphrodites. Right? Because she, she promised fertility, she promised sexual things, she promised all of these things, what their desires wanted. You see, we don't want to see God for who God is because we'd have to worship and serve Him. So we suppress the truth about God. And instead of worshiping God, we worship the gods of our own making and our own choosing. Claiming to be wise, he says here, they became fools. They, they, their reasoning became foolish. The evidence is there. We should be able to see God clearly in creation. But instead of reasoning properly and saying, yes, there's a God out there, our reasoning goes down here. It goes into foolishness and believing lies rather than truth. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool 
says in his heart, there is no God. And by changing this, by, by giving away to foolish reasoning, mankind exchanges the glory of God for images, selfish desires. Think about that. Christmas is coming up. And many of us will get a lot of different Christmas gifts. Uh, maybe you get a, a nice shirt. But it doesn't fit. The shirt doesn't fit. Maybe it's too big. Maybe it's too small. Maybe it's just the wrong color. Something doesn't fit. And so what are you going to do? You're going to take it down to the store and you're going to exchange it for something that fits right. Something that's more to your liking. You see, that's the way man does with God. God doesn't fit my wants. God doesn't fit my desires. He's really not what I'm looking for. And so what mankind does, they, they, we exchange the glory of God for something that fits our wants, that fits our desires, that fits our view of life, that fits our political opinions, that fits our secular opinions. It fits. Mankind looks at God and says, God, I don't want you. I want something that fits me. But dear friend, you can't change who God is. And you can never exchange the glory of God for something else because all of those other things, whatever it may be, whatever God you may create, it will lead to disappointment every time. Sinful people willfully and willingly exchange the glory of God for the lie. They change God, exchange Him for something that better fits. Evolutionary scientists exchange the glory of God for human intellect. How could we ever admit that there's a God out there who thinks better than we think? Many people around the world exchange the glory of God for money or material possessions. That's one of our biggest gods. It's not a statue. We don't worship statues, but, but we worship money. We worship material things. If I can get more, if I can gain more, if I can have more, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have joy. Then I'll have satisfaction. So we fall down to the, the idol of money and possessions because that's giving us what, what, what we want. But money and possessions and popularity and all of those things, they will never deliver what God delivers. They're false idol made of wood that will burn away. Many people worship things like sports, sexuality. You just name it and people make idols out of it. Even Christians, dear friend, we can be guilty of exchanging the glory of God for an idol. We're in danger of that even when we come together and worship in a place like this. What do we do when we come in and we say, oh, well, I don't like that music. It doesn't get me where I need to be. Oh, I don't like the way things are set up. That's just not, I just can't get into worship. 
Oh, if the music, if we don't sing enough hymns, I can't worship. If we don't sing enough choruses, I can't worship. If we don't do this, I can't worship. If we don't do that, I can't worship. Who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the songs? Are you worshiping the, 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 the scenery? What are you worshiping? We come to worship God. And it shouldn't matter if we sing a hymn or we sing a chorus or we sing whatever. It shouldn't matter what instruments we use as long as we're here to worship God. He's the center of our worship when we make our preferences. When our preferences become the determining factor of whether I can worship or not, I'm not worshiping God. I'm worshiping myself and my own preferences. Oh, dear Christians, we've got to be careful. We've got to be so careful. And I'll put myself in there. I'm at danger too. I can be caught up in what I like and what I want so much that I come in here to worship myself instead of truly worshiping God. But that can't be. We must come. And see God. Recognize God for who He is. And no matter if it's a, a chorus, or no matter if it's a, a hymn, if it's speaking truth about God, then let us pour our hearts out in praise to God. Praise God from whom all kingdoms flow. Pray, praise Him, all creatures here below. We ought to praise God. Because God alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. Oh, we've got to put ourselves up on, on the, the, the altar. Crucify ourselves. Crucify our wants. Crucify our desires. Crucify all of those things that tend to drag us away from God. Crucify our money. Crucify our bank account. Crucify our material possessions. Crucify our homes. Crucify it all. Crucify our families. Crucify it all to worship the One who is worthy of all worship and praise. Will you praise Him? We must come to worship. Everybody worships, but misdirected worship ends in eternal judgment. Oh, dear friends, here's the solution. While everybody worships something or someone, we must worship the one true God. And in order for us to worship the one true God, we need redemption. We need redemption. In chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 23 and 24, Paul says there, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through the redemption. If we want to worship God, if we want to truly worship God, then we need redemption from God's judgment. Perhaps today there's those here who you don't, you've never experienced the redemption of God through Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 11, chapter 6 says, or verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. Impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If you're here and you've never turned to, to God and turned to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him, you can never please God. You can never worship God. If you've never trusted in Jesus, it's only through Jesus Christ that we come into a loving relationship with God. It's only through Jesus Christ that we come to be able to worship God. Surrender ourselves to God. Do you trust in Jesus? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? We need redemption from our from God's judgment for our own sin. And second, we need redemption in our worship. We need redemption in our worship. Dear Christians, we need to look at ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, what am I coming to worship? What am I coming to worship? How easy it is for us to slip into idolatry. As Calvin once said, uh, the heart, the human heart is a factory of idols. We just build idol after idol after idol. And we can even build an idol here in this sanctuary if we're not careful. We need God to redeem our own worship. We need God to work His, His power, His eternal power in our lives day after day after day. So Christian, today, maybe your, your need today, your, your uh, response to this message is you need to just fall on your face before God. And you need to confess, Lord, I've been making it about me. I've been making it about me, but I want to make it about you. Would you strengthen me? Would you give me that power? Would you redeem my worship so that my worship would honor and glorify your name above every other name? Dear friends, we need redemption. Redemption from God's judgment and redemption in our everyday life. We need God's love and power working in us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the redemption that You have promised us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we do confess today, each and every one of us, Lord, we have a tendency to, to, to give praise and honor to things other than You. We tend to worship our, our possessions more than You. We tend to worship other people more than You. We tend to worship other things more than You. But Lord, redeem our worship. By the power of Your Holy Spirit indwelling in us, redeem our worship. Help us, Lord and our weakness. And Lord, if there's those today who need redemption from sin, who need to turn away from their life of rebellion and turn to Jesus, Lord, let them see Jesus today. Let them know the power of Your salvation. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.